This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture, brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture, and today our topic is the Scripture, the inspiration of Scripture, and particularly issues that swirl around the concept of inerrancy and the trustworthiness and reliability, particularly of the New Testament. And I have two very distinguished guests and, and actually uh, good friends online here over Skype, uh, Mike Kruger and Andreas Kostenberger. I'm not sure I did the the Germanic nature of that name much justice, but I did it. I did my best, Andreas. Um, and uh, as you can see, they're both with us on Skype because they're in different locations. So, Andreas, why don't you tell us where you are and and what you do where you are? All right, they're uh, great to be with you and with you, Mike. Uh, I'm in Wake Forest, North Carolina. I'm a senior research professor here at the Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Very good. And Michael, you're you're in a, yet another locale. Where are you? And I know yeah, you're a busy Charlotte. guy. That's right. I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina. I'm about three hours away from Andreas right now. Okay. Wish we could do this together, but uh, we're in the same state. So I'm at Reformed Theological Seminary, the Charlotte campus, and I'm a professor of New Testament here and also president of the campus. Yeah, it just happens to be president, you know. So, uh, well, I really do appreciate you guys uh, joining us for this, and then we'll just dive straight in. And I'll tell you, tell everyone kind of how this podcast came to um, came to be a topic we wanted to discuss. Uh, over the last year, there have been a series of uh, blogs, really, um, uh, around uh, raising questions about inerrancy in one way or another, uh, pitched probably at a younger audience in many ways uh, to discuss the nature of the Scripture. And uh, uh, Michael was watching this go on and, and uh, wrote Andreas and me, among others, uh, to participate in some responses to some of the issues that were raised. And so we did that, and in the midst of that, uh, you know, I raised the question, well, let's not just do it on a blog, let's go ahead and talk about it with people and kind of work our way through the issues. So Michael, why don't you fill that out and, and talk about how that happened and where people can find that information, and then we'll dive into the topic straight away. Yeah, well, thanks, Daryl. All of us keep up with what's going on in the biblical world from time to time regarding inerrancy and inspiration, and probably most of us know we've been uh, seeing the blog site over at Pete Enz's blog. I uh, forget the title of it right off the top of my head, where he had a series going called Aha Moments in Biblical Scholarship, and that series was designed to highlight scholars who changed their view of Scripture once they realized there were things in it they, they didn't expect. And so these were sort of evangelical scholars that later became more moderate, and sometimes even further than that, uh, down the line, and they had these epiphany moments uh, regarding usually contradictions they found in the Bible, and there was a long list of these that he had on his website. So, as you know, I contacted you and Andreas and a number of other scholars and said, hey, you know, why don't we go through these alleged contradictions sort of one by one and offer a response uh, so that the, the world out there, particularly the lay-level folks, can get a short, succinct answer to some of these Bible challenges. And so we did that. My site's name is called Canon Fodder. 
Uh, obviously, one N for Canon, unless you missed the pun. <laughs> That's exactly right. Uh, and uh, we've been doing that series for a while. We've had about eight or nine installments. We've got a little pause. I'm waiting for Don Carson's uh, and Stan Porter's. Uh, maybe we'll be waiting a while longer. But you know how these things go. <laughs> yeah. And then we'll wrap up the series. But it's been great. We've been looking at all kinds of things, Old Testament issues, New Testament issues. It's been fun. So, yeah, and the, and the thrust of this, the feel of these pieces was, you know, the closer I looked and the harder I looked and the more mature I became in working with the Scripture, the more realistic uh, a view of Scripture I, I came to have. And it kind of works through, as you call them, epiphany moments. Uh, and we'll talk about the light associated with the moment in a minute. But uh, uh, Andreas, when when Michael asked you to do this, uh, I, I know you responded positively as I did. Uh, why do you think this is an important conversation to engage in? Uh, I really feel like this is a bit of a new development that's somewhat unprecedented in that you have uh, no longer someone like Bart Ehrman, who clearly is not an evangelical who stands outside of of, of the orthodox uh, evangelical Christian faith, who basically takes uh, you know takes a, a strong position of doubt and skepticism, and, and in many ways just tries to frontally you know contradict and undermine the scriptures. Uh, this is very different. Here you have some some people who would like to be considered evangelicals, who believe they are evangelicals, who are uh, claiming to actually uh, try to to strengthen other people's faith and to uphold the trustworthiness of Scripture, but they have forged this new paradigm that they call. Uh, uh, trustworthy but flawed or or inadequate but 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 just but still reliable uh, and uh, if you and I you know think that's a contradiction in terms I think what they feel like is well it's kind of like uh, you know a marriage where you know both people are sinners right but mm -hmm. just because they're sinful people doesn't mean they can't still have a great marriage mm -hmm. and so it, it it appeals to this newer, younger generation that says, well, we're too sophisticated to still believe that Scripture, you know, is, is, is inspired and inerrant, uh, but we still need a foundation for our faith, and we still think Jesus, you know, is great. And so, so it's this new uh, uh, movement within the evangelical movement, and that's why it is particularly dangerous, I think, and needs to be responded to. So, so Michael, you you put forward these um, the these blogs and are in the process of posting them. And uh, why is this an important discussion in your mind? Well, in many ways, uh, I get these questions all the time, just in my role as a professor. I know you guys do too. Mm -hmm. I mean, our students are asking, and they're usually asking because their congregations are asking, and the average person in the pew is asking. Uh, and so, if we don't have a response to these things, then, then our seminary students, as they go out in the pulpit, aren't going to know how to interact with these issues. The other thing I'll add to it, too, is part of the newness of what's happening here <clears throat> isn't just the retention of the evangelical label while you critique the Bible, which is sort of a weird hybrid, but also the idea of, of taking this to the lay audience has been sort of the trend for the last 10 or 15 years. It's been a much more popular thing. Ehrman certainly has done this. He sort of bypasses the academy and goes right for the lay people in many of his works. Um, you look at Pete Enns' recent book, The Bible Tells Me So, written very much at a lay level, popular level, published by Harper One, no footnotes, all designed to go for the lay level. So the reason I thought the blog was important is because even though the three of us have written about these issues in books, 
the average person we know today, for better or for worse, isn't reading the books we write necessarily. They're reading blogs or reading the websites. We want to reach the average person, which is why I thought this series was so important. Yeah, it is. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, about the teaching of the inspiration of Scripture and inerrancy. And of course, the thing you often hear about inerrancy from <clears throat> some people is it's a new doctrine. Uh, it, it's uh, it, it's relatively recent in its development. Uh, it doesn't reflect uh, the views of the early church. Those kinds of things. Now, I, if I had been really smart. I would have gotten a historical theologian who, who majors in this to discuss this, but uh, I, I think you guys are capable of handling it. Um, uh, what do we do with the idea or the claim that inerrancy is new? And, and I think to start off this discussion, I want to put on the table something that I teach in exegesis that really is important, and that is what I call the word-concept fallacy. Uh, which is that just because you don't see the word in a discussion doesn't mean that you don't have the concept on the table. Uh, and I, I like to illustrate it uh, this way. It might be tough since you guys are in North Carolina, but my illustration is the cowboys are going to the frozen tundra to melt the cheese heads. And when I say this, I ask my class, what am I talking about? And of course they respond, well, that's American football. And I say, well, how do you know that's about American football? American football is nowhere in that sentence. And uh, of course, they're able to triangulate the various linguistic clues in the topic that tell me that's what it's about. Or another example that I'll use that's theological. Uh, the Nicene Creed never uses the word Trinity explicitly in, in its layout, and yet it's all about the Trinity. Um, so just because you don't use a word doesn't mean you don't have a concept. So with that kind of as the background, I don't know which one of you want to speak to this first, but uh, let's deal with the idea that inerrancy is a new concept and a, and a new doctrine. Mm -hmm. Well, one thing would be to start out by pointing out to, you know, what you might call the self-attestation of Scripture. You know, Scripture says of itself that it is trustworthy, that it is truthful. You know, you think of some Psalms like Psalm 19 or Psalm 119. You think of Jesus' own statement that the Scripture cannot be broken. And, you know, you think of, of, of other statements where, where you see that the New Testament writers, uh, like the Gospel of John, uh, has a strong emphasis on eyewitness testimony that's truthful. And so, uh, first thing to be said, not the last thing, would be that really, you know, even in Scripture itself, you already see that, that you have this testimony that Scripture can be trusted because it is the Word of God. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I would add a couple more things. One of the things I find fascinating about those who don't like the word inerrancy and think that's new, I uh, usually prefer terms like infallible. And of course, I always point out that in some sense, infallible is even more stringent than inerrancy. Inerrancy just simply says the text is without error, but infallible means it's incapable of, of, of erring. Uh, and so in one sense, I, you could point out the inconsistency there. The other response we'd make, which is a typical one, is that historically studies have shown that in fact it's not a new idea. It's not simply a 20th century fundamentalist concept. It dates all the way back to, we would argue, the early church, certainly as Andres has pointed out, the early scriptures themselves. But I was looking just in Augustine's work recently, and, and you look at Augustine's interaction with the synoptic gospels and dealing with the synoptic problem, he makes a number of statements that are very clearly consistent with what we would call inerrancy, even though he leaves the word out. And so you could date this all the way back to the early church. Now, um, obviously there are key texts in the New Testament that address this as well, that talk about the Scripture being God-breathed, uh, to use the 
good, very literal translation of the word that often gets uh, translated as in, inspired. This is the Second Timothy three, sixteen passage. We've got the passage in Peter, which talks about no prophecy comes by human um, generation, if I can say it that way, uh, but is uh, directed to an act of God. So the trustworthiness has to do with ultimately a statement that God is responsible for uh, for the contents of Scripture, and thus it rests in the character of God. Inerrancy has two major concepts to it. One is the association of authorship and and the divine roots of the generation of that authorship. And the second is a slightly more controversial uh, uh, addition, and that is the qualification in the original manuscripts. Um, this is something that gets put forward that a lot of people will raise, and they will say, well, we don't have those original manuscripts, so what's the point of, of referring to them? So let's, let's deal with that question a little bit. How do you all respond to the idea that, that, um, that it's important to make a statement about original manuscripts versus, say, the copies of the Scripture we hold in our hands? Maybe I can just give a brief summary statement and let Mike elaborate a bit, but I think the important thing to point out is that we don't have the original manuscripts, but we do have the original text. We have the text of Scripture, and along with that, it is actually the text that is inspired, not the ink, you know, on the parchment. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. I mean, if you read Herman's Misquoting Jesus, he makes this argument regularly, which is, hey, we don't have the autographs, we don't have the original copies. He almost thinks of original text as a physical object. That if you if you if you don't have the physical object, the autographs, then you, therefore you don't have the original text. But we would argue the original text can be preserved in other ways, so that the text can exist without the original physical copies. And uh, as we've argued in our own book, the Heresy of Orthodoxy, and other places have done this. You know, our copies are so very close to the, or our reconstructed text is so very close to the original that it's really not uh, a relevant point to suggest that we don't have the original text. In a sense, we do have the original text, at least close enough for any reasonable discussion about what the original author said. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Grieve, Breathe, Receive, Finding a Faith Strong Enough to Hold Us, written and narrated by Pastor Steve Carter. Grieve, Breathe, Receive. Those three words became a profound mantra for Steve Carter during a season of deep healing, the kind that comes after painful trauma. Grieve, Breathe, Receive is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com slash audio to learn more. Yeah, and we have so much manuscript evidence for what this text is, uh, extended over multiple copies and over uh, multiple centuries. You sometimes get into a discussion about how far back many of those copies go, but you're dealing with the line in which you're making copies because as copies wear out, you reproduce them in order to keep the text alive. You know, you're before the printing press, you're before <laughs> Macs and PCs, and, uh, and so this is how you preserve the text is to copy them again and again and again and again. And the masses of manuscript evidence that we have in comparison to other classical pieces of literature tell us that we have the text. I like to tell my students, our problem is we have about 105 percent of the text Absolutely. rather than 100 percent of the text. We've got the text plus all the variants that have come in through the process of copying. And the process of text criticism is to whittle away at those options. And and for a layperson for whom you know text criticism and manuscripts is a completely different, almost 
almost foreign world, uh, even they get some access to this conversation because a good Bible will oftentimes in the margin have a note that says or that tells you what the alternative is. So you know if it's not the reading that you have in the text, then the option is this thing that's sitting off in the margin that's telling you what the wording is. So there are, we, we've got access to the original text in many ways. Yeah, the analogy I like to use is it's like having a puzzle with too many pieces. Mm-hmm. So you take a puzzle and you, you dump out the box and you're trying to make the picture make sense on the front. And you have when you're done making, you have these extra pieces left over. And that's kind of what textual criticism, as you pointed out, is. We have more than the original. And if there's only certain ones that fit. Right, and you can make a good distinction between the ones that fit and the ones that don't, and that's really what the text critical task is all about. Yeah, another point that I like to make, I remember having a discussion when I was a doctoral student in Aberdeen with with an evangelical who had come from another uh, seminary context, and we and he was he held the kind of this next view of inspiration over from from my own. And we were over dinner with our wives, probably not the most exciting conversation our wives have ever participated in. And, uh, and I turned to him, we were discussing inerrancy, we were discussing original manuscripts, and I turned to him, and we both were working in Luke-Acts. And so I said to him, when you preach in the church, do you preach manuscript D? And he said to me, no. And I said, well, why not? I mean, if, if the statement of the original manuscripts doesn't make any sense, then why not just pick the text of Acts that you like? And uh, and of course he came back to me and said, "Well, I don't think D is." And he, you know, <laughs> kind of paused. <laughs> and uh, and I said, "Yeah, that's the point." And I think sometimes we forget that when we've got a doctrine like inerrancy, there actually is something we're trying to affirm that's important. And that is that when I approach the text, I approach the text with a with a with an openness and a trust that this text is. Accurate that it's designed. It, it, it's designed uh, not just to affirm something, but to deny something at the same time. And what it's primarily denying is the idea that the scripture errs. That when I approach it, I've got to approach it with some kind of an understanding and appreciation. Uh, that that it uh, that I read it in such a way that I that I make try and make sense of it first, rather than simply assuming that it's wrong. And I think sometimes people forget that when they think about this doctrine. And of course, uh, Daryl and Mike, I think the three of us are primarily focused in our scholarship on the New Testament, but I think the same could be extended to the Old Testament as well. As you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls have unearthed numerous Old Testament manuscripts, such as the famous Isaiah Scroll. And I think, uh, you know, what you see is about a thousand years prior to up to that point, the earliest manuscripts, the, the Masoretic tradition, uh, people were amazed how close to, to that tradition uh, that reading was, which goes to show that uh, the scribes took great care to preserve manuscripts because they believed this was the Word of God, this was, was sacred scripture, and so if anything, they were scrupulous in trying to preserve, uh, you know, their holy scriptures. Now, I, yeah, I would add to that that on the, New, on the New Testament side, in, in my book, The Question of Canon, I do this a little bit in our book, The Heresy of Orthodoxy. I go deeper into also the Christian scribal infrastructure. What does that look like? What were Christian scribes like? What evidence do we have for the way they copied the text and how scrupulous they were and what sort of uh, formats they use? And as we all know, there was impressive things about early Christian scribal activity that suggests a great deal of organization and uniformity and uh, intentional planning within the Christian scribal process. And I think that's always another layer 
of trust while we have the original text. Now, of course, this isn't all to suggest that there aren't issues to discuss. I mean, the reason why we have these conversations and these blogs are going back and forth, arguing positions uh, pro and con, is because there are issues out there. There, there, uh, there can be an assumption that inerrancy means certain things that it may not actually mean, and therefore some ways in which I find inerrancy gets uh, attacked or challenged is by foisting on inerrancy a standard that, that itself, the Scripture itself, is not trying to maintain. And so people wrestle with things like the differences in parallel accounts between uh, the Gospels, uh, the differences in details about certain kinds of events, that kind of thing. So, uh, Mike, let me uh, start this kind of new direction in our conversation off this way. What were some of the kinds of specific issues that, that came up that your blog response has been dealing with? And, and let's think about them kind of in generic kinds of categories about the kinds of questions people have when you say uh, the Scripture doesn't err with regard to the original manuscripts. Yeah, so there's several different categories here. One of the most common is the parallel passage category, right? And this mm -hmm. particularly is true for the synoptics you know, where synoptics tend to not seem to have Jesus saying the same things or doing the same things in the same order. So this is a common issue. And synoptics, um, and of course, being Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Thank you. Yeah. Matthew, Luke, John. yeah. Uh, so one of the issues is how the Bible squares with itself, and there's a number of those largely related to the Gospel accounts. But then there's another category of objections that came up in terms of how the Bible squares to what is said in other disciplines or what is said in other uh, historical accounts. So not just the issue of whether the Bible disagrees with itself, but does the Bible disagree with Josephus or about the census of Quirinius? Mm -hmm. Does it disagree with other things we know about the ancient world and how things were done? And so those are two large categories of the kind of attacks that went down, is the Bible disagrees with itself, and the Bible disagrees with other known facts of history. Okay, let's let's go through some specific examples here so we help help people sort out kind of what's going on and also create the right kinds of expectations for the types of things that the Bible is doing. Um, one example that comes up, this goes back to an article that I did for a book called Jesus Under Fire that was entitled The Words of Jesus Live, Jive, or Memorex. So Memorex doesn't exist anymore, so it's a it's a it's a faded metaphor, but that of course that was a kind of tape. Uh, uh, that, that people recorded things on. And uh, those of you who are under 25, just look up dictionary of the word tape, and we're not talking about the type of thing that holds things together, but a re recording tape. Anyway, um, so, uh, and here's one of the examples that came up that I think illustrates the kind of problem that we're dealing with. I'm thinking about uh, the confession that, uh, that Peter makes at Caesarea Philippi. And he's answering the question, and in fact, even the question raises the, the question to some degree, who do people say that I am, or who do people say the Son of Man is? I mean, the question gets asked in two different forms to begin with, and the answer comes back, the Christ, the Christ of God, and then the Christ, and then I like to em embellish the Matthean version, the Son of the Living God. So you've got, you know, these, these three different replies that you're dealing with. And so the question becomes, you know, in relationship particularly to the idea of a red-letter Bible, you know, Jesus said exactly this, um, what's going on here? So how would you explain that kind of an example to, uh, to your audiences or to your students? Well, first of all, um, Jesus probably spoke Aramaic, not Greek, and the Gospels are written down in Greek, so you have, first of all, a translation issue at work here, and uh, 
Uh, secondly, you have uh, literary dependence between the Gospels as well. You have, thirdly, different emphases made in the different Gospels. And and uh, this being an oral culture, I think you simply don't have the same uh, obsession with with literalistic precision as, 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 as we today might find. So somebody could conceivably paraphrase the Aramaic uh, in a certain way uh, and... Uh, and and somebody else could paraphrase it slightly differently, and both uh, feeling they've adequately and accurately paraphrased the original statement. Michael? No, yeah, I tell my students all the time, you know, look, you know, do we have the actual words of Jesus? Well, it depends what you mean, right? We mm -hmm. certainly don't have them in Aramaic, as Andreas already pointed out, assuming he spoke Aramaic, which is debated. And then it's very common in ancient historiography to condense, summarize, paraphrase, and then even when you do condense, summarize or paraphrase, you do it on certain terms, like what's my audience? What part do they need to know about? What, what thing do I want to emphasize to the person I'm speaking to? And so it's not just that you're doing those things, you're doing those things with a particular audience in mind. So no wonder that Matthew has it slightly different than Luke, but they're all trying to condense or paraphrase or summarize what Jesus said in some fashion. So you have a whole number of different dynamics swimming around. And when we compare this to other historians in the ancient world, this is exactly what they did. They hear a speech, they don't give you the whole speech, they summarize a speech in a statement, and then put it on the lips of the person who spoke it. Doesn't mean it's inaccurate. It means that it's uh, uh, accurate in the way that ancient historiography was done. And of course, with this particular example, what I like to point out is, is that what you've got going on is you've got a confession that Jesus is the Christ in all three. The gist of what is being said here is, is clear, particularly in light of what was said before with the prophetic categories that were that – were, that were mentioned by, you know, what do the, who do people say that I am versus, you know, who do you say that I am? And so you've got those kinds of different. Another example that shows this kind of difference, I, I like to point out, happens in something as significant as the wording at the Last Supper. Um, you've got the difference between uh, this is the blood of the covenant versus this is the blood of the new covenant. Okay, and you go, you know, um, you know, the very, very literal person says, okay, what did Jesus say? And of course, there's only one covenant that hasn't been uh, established by the time Jesus is talking. The Abrahamic covenant's already operative. The Davidic covenant's been been going for a while. Uh, it's the new covenant that was being anticipated to be realized. And so when he's talking about establishing the blood of the covenant, it's quite possible that's all Jesus said. But implicit in that was the covenant that was being referred to, which was the new covenant. So someone comes along and makes explicit what's implicit. It was already there. It just wasn't on the surface. And in the process, you get a difference of wording. So those kinds of situations, uh, I, I think, happen actually pretty regularly and can, can be anticipated. Michael, you look well, like you yeah, want to add a, a, another example, even within early Christianity, outside the New Testament of this happening. So often what would happen is patristic writers would translate the work of another patristic writer, and when they translate it into another language, they make explicit what they know was implicit in the original text. Mm -hmm. A good example of this is Rufinus of Aquileia, who translated a lot of Origen's works from Greek into Latin. And when he did that, he would often take what is implicit in origin and make it explicit for the needs of his audience. People would accuse Rufinus of not being a good translator, but actually he did very similarly what no doubt the New Testament writers would do when they would quote people. Sometimes they would take something that's implicit and make it explicit for the sake of the audience. Nevertheless, true. Okay, well, that's one category. Let's let's deal with another here, and, and now I have in mind uh, the sequence of the three temptations. Uh, which is another good example of a different sort. Um, I'll let one of you explain the nature of the problem, and then I'll let uh, 
either one of you discuss how you how you deal with that one. Who wants to take on the temptations of Jesus? Andreas? <laughs> in, in, in Matthew 4 and in Luke 4, both an account of, of, of uh, Jesus' temptation. There's a shorter version, of course, in Mark. Uh, mm -hmm. Just very, very quickly in keeping with, with Mark's uh, brevity, but both in, in Matthew and Luke, you have a more extensive, uh, you know, you might almost say blow-by-blow -blow account where you have a series of three temptations. And... Uh, memory serves uh, the, the the first temptation is the same in both but but Matthew and Luke uh, reverse the order of temptations numbers uh, two and three. Uh, Luke uh, concluding with the familiar uh, temptation of Jesus throwing himself uh, down from the temple uh, and uh, uh, and uh, many believe well, I'll let Mike explain uh, how interpreters deal with this. Yeah, I think where Andres was headed with that, of course, Daryl knows better than anybody being the Lucan scholar is people think that Luke rearranged the temple at the end because of his focus on the temple and other aspects of his gospel. Um, and you, this is a good example, again, of how theological concerns can also dictate the way history is presented. It doesn't dictate whether history is true or accurate. It's not that, that Luke was making something up, but you present history in such a way to address the theological needs of your audience and the theological needs you have. Um, and that's one of the explanations for that particular order. Regardless, you know, it's a great reminder that chronological order is in principle not something that gospel authors always felt the need to follow. I mean, one of the perennial examples of this, which probably you're headed to, Daryl, is the issue of the of the cleansing of the temple, mm -hmm. right? Uh, in the Synoptics versus John, which is another example of potentially at least a chronological order issue, and there's a number of other examples. Yeah, and in fact, I like to say, uh, how many sporting event reports do we begin that we read begin with the uh, way in which the tip-off happened or the kickoff happened, and then proceed in in chronological sequence through the story of the game? We actually do this today in our own historical writing. We just don't think about it very much. Usually, when I pick up a story of an event, the key play is usually at the front end or some key part of the game, and then. At some point, we go back in and either review, sometimes in sequence, sometimes out of sequence, what happened in the game. In some cases, the choice is made that something happened or its relationship to something else is more important than talking about the chronological sequence in which it happened. And, and we allow historians today to make those choices. We ought to allow ancient historians to make those choices as well. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Join us next week for part two. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.